0: The catch. What made, down a with a catch allow- the fumble. Ernest Beiner. Fumble. Fumble the ball and Denver has recovered. Oh my! The shot. At the buzzer. Michael Jordan has won it for Chicago. For sports fans from a certain area, there's some of the most painful words in the English language. On this why-we root, It's been over half a century since one of America's great old sports towns has seen one of their major pro teams bring home a championship. The Cavaliers are threatening to break the Cleveland curse, but will it be enough to mend the hearts of fans that have been broken over and over through the generations? We talked to a few of them to find out why we root, even when it hurts so much and for so very long. That's coming up on the show about the fan experience from MansLife.com. I'm Eric Mack, and this is Why We Root, the show about the fan experience from MansLife.com.
1: And I'm Ned Doherty.
0: Ned, let me tell you about a little city by a big lake. Let's go back to 1920. The city was the fifth largest city in the United States, and in that year, their baseball team defeated another baseball team called the Brooklyn Robins in the World Series. That city by the lake, of course, is Cleveland. Wow. And now, if we were to fast forward to today, that fifth largest city in the United States is now about the forty-eighth largest city in the United States, um, sandwiched in between uh, Tulsa and Wichita on the rankings for population. There, and and the reason we're talking about this city is because they haven't had a lot of championships lately. I mean, they were a little on a little bit of a tear there in the twenties, and uh, you know, through the thirties and forties, the Browns were pretty good. But since the sixties there's been something called the Cleveland Curse. Yeah. It's been since 1964, that's the last time the Browns won an NFL championship game. Ryan to throw, blitz on, there's a long bomb to Collins, and he got the
2: ball, he's in it for a touchdown! The
0: final score, the Browns 27, Baltimore nothing. And that's two seasons prior to the first Super Bowl. So we're not really even talking the modern era here. Uh, so collectively, between the three major teams in that city—the Browns, the Indians, and the Cavaliers—we are talking about a hundred and fifty-six season championship drought.
3: One of my favorite sports writers is Bill Simmons, and Bill Simmons has this, this famous uh, quote slash saying, "God hates Cleveland."
0: <laughs> and It's like maybe God does hate Cleveland. <laughs> That's Greg Sims Jr. He's a writer for MansLife.com, and he's one of a couple of Cleveland fans that we interviewed for this show. He spent his formative years in Cleveland, and his father was actually a beat writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer covering the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs are an NBA franchise that's been around since 1970, but they've never won a championship in all that time. Although they've been close a few times, including one notable moment when Michael Jordan ripped the town's heart out in 1989. It up at the buzzer! Michael Jordan has won it for Chicago! That's the moment referred to as the shot. And you find there's a lot of these moments with similar one-word names in Cleveland sports history. For example, there's also the fumble. Draw oh, to And arguably, the Cleveland curse begins with a moment from 1954 called The Catch, when Willie Mays ended the Cleveland Indians' hope of a world championship. Like as far as 1954, people were already talking about the curse of Chief Wahoo, as it's mm-hmm. called, uh, beginning with the Indians uh, failing to win a World Series in 1948.
1: I did grow up with the Major League movie series with Charlie Sheen and Wesley Snipes. They made a movie about how bad the Cleveland baseball team was, and they, then they made three of them. I don't even know if that movie, the first Major League, ended with them winning the World Series. I think it was just them winning the pennant. That's how high they could, you know, anything other than that would just be science fiction, I guess, for, the, for <laughs> Hollywood to communicate to the fans. But uh, yeah, so that's my understanding of what Cleveland represented was it was a joke. It was a joke in Hollywood. It must have been a joke on the field, too.
0: Here comes the throw! He slides! Say, say! The Indians win it! The Indians win it! Oh my God, the Indians win it! So just for the record, we're actually giving that fictional version of the Cleveland Indians too much credit uh, in the ending of the movie there. They just won the division, not even the pennant. So we've kind of got this legacy in Cleveland of near misses, getting really close to a championship, and then having it all pulled away at the last second. There's the catch, the shot. The fumble we've talked about. There's also the drive, which happened the year before the fumble. Um, The Indians lost two World Series in the 1990s, including one in 1997 to the Florida Marlins, where they were actually leading going into the final inning, and they couldn't hold on. The 1-1 pitch. A deep drive to right. Ramirez on the run. Makes the catch. Tagging is a move. Game 7 of the World Series is tied. So for the first four decades or so of the Cleveland curse, it's really about teams that are good, but they're just not champions. But in the last 20 or so years, things have actually taken a darker, more cruel turn for Cleveland. And nothing epitomizes this more than LeBron James of the Cleveland Cavaliers and a moment that's become simply known as the decision. The
1: answer to the question everybody wants to know.
0: LeBron, what's your decision? Um, and this fall, man, this is very tough. Um, and this fall, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and, um, join the Miami Heat. Miami Heat.
1: That was the conclusion you woke up with this morning. That was the conclusion I woke up with this morning. So what, what feelings does this phrase bring up for a Cleveland fan? I'm going to take my talents to South Beach.
3: My instant reaction. Oh!
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. So you've got the greatest player in the game. He hasn't won a championship yet. The kid is from the area where he's playing. And he has taken the Cavaliers to the championship. They lost to the Spurs. So it's amazing that the stars aligned where LeBron, who was definitely going to be this once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation player, ends up with the Cavaliers. He takes them as close as he can with the team that, that, that the ownership was able to put around him. And then... He's a free agent for the first time in his life. He creates this really, really odd, especially uh, in retrospect, a really odd like public relations move where ESPN hosts his announcement of where he's going to play, right, yeah. and he does it in a gym in northeastern Ohio. It might have even been Akron. And he says to the world, in his own backyard, I'm going to South Beach, First of all, no one ever used the word South Beach, but now everybody does to explain what Miami is. So Cleveland erupts, and people are burning his, his jersey in the street. Um, the The franchise gets two consecutive first-round or number-one picks because he's gone. They plummet that instantaneously. Um, they get a third out of just happenstance with the NBA lottery. But them him leaving really defined as well you know someone who grows up there and wants to win a championship in that city isn't even willing to stay so from afar it was it confirmed everything we knew about Cleveland it unfortunately gave LeBron James um, a pretty pretty terrible reputation around other fan bases in the NBA like how could could you imagine a player saying that with under those circumstances grown up there Took him to the championship. Now he's going to go to South Beach. Like, what a dick. (laughs) But so very Cleveland. As
3: a guy who grew up in Cleveland, it hurt. But at the same time, I understood. Uh, LeBron, he's a once in every two generations kind of talent. He knew that he had a window. He wanted to win. Dan Gilbert just wasn't going to give him the team that he needed to win. So it hurt me to see him leave. But at the same time... You know, he's moving to Miami. You know Miami, Florida. Like if I could if I could move to Miami, I would. Like right in the middle of this conversation, <laughs>
0: so I can't really, I can't really be, can't, can't really be mad at him. So clearly, many Browns fans do have a capacity for forgiveness. But in 1995, the city suffered sort of the ultimate indignity to a sports town. That's when Browns owner Art Modell did the one thing that many Browns fans have never forgiven him for. The Browns are indeed coming to Baltimore.
2: Halfway through the 1995 season, Cleveland residents were shocked to learn that the financially besieged Modell had secretly signed an agreement with Maryland officials to move the franchise, effectively shattering a 35-year relationship with one of the most loyal fan bases in the NFL.
3: I had no choice. He initially Was going to move the Browns, and it was because of the municipal stadium. And there was a vote right before he moved the team uh, whether or not the city of Cleveland would would fund the stadium. And uh, Cleveland overwhelmingly voted in favor of this measure to fund, to to give the Modell family the funds they needed to keep the stadium. And he still moved the team. That's why. Right. There was so much uh, venom towards Modell. He, he
0: got what he wanted. And he still, you know, took the team. It was insane. For three seasons, Cleveland was without a professional football team. And that might not seem like a big deal if you're not familiar, but the history of pro football in Cleveland dates back to World War One. Jim Thorpe played on the Cleveland Football Indians back in 1921. And the road to what today's game looks like and is played like can be traced to Paul Brown, the Cleveland Browns founder and namesake, and of course, through Cleveland itself.
2: It is a great football town, and I think that that has absolutely been forgotten.
0: This is Mark Sessler, and today he covers pro football for the NFL Network. Although he grew up in New England, Sessler's been a Browns fan since he was a kid. And the team's move from Cleveland to Baltimore derailed one of his dreams.
2: Most Browns fans had a sense from the minute they moved because the outcry was so uh, vivid and, and so angry from the Cleveland side that there was a sense from early on that the NFL was going to give them an expansion team. And it was certainly a, within a year of them moving, it was it was essentially put in stone that that would happen. Just sort of the timing of it was was unclear. So I kind of knew that it would be two to three seasons where I would get my team back. Um, you know, kind of tough to to watch a guy like Bill Belichick go out the door. I actually was one of the people that really – I really liked Belichick and wound up in college um, wanting to get into PR and stuff. And I went to school in Ohio – during one of his final seasons in Cleveland, and I, I my plan was to work for the team in PR or do something. This was really before there were even like team websites or any of that business. And to see the whole thing like crash and burn, it affected me personally because it was like a a goal of mine to finally, after you know, a childhood of rooting for these guys joined the team. And I really, I thought that Belichick was a good coach and they, they were building something. They went to the playoffs the year before they moved. And so when it all broke down during those three seasons, yeah, I, I would just go to the sports bar and just as a big football fan, watch all the games. It was just like, gotta be patient and wait and hope that they, the team that they put in place would be well-built. And it certainly was not, it couldn't have been worse.
0: Okay. So I just want to read you a, a list of, of highlights from the new Browns since, mm. um, since '99. So since 1999, uh, there was an eight-year stretch where the team had only one Pro Bowler. There was a Jacksonville game that was called with 45 seconds left because fans were upset with the call and throwing bottles on the field. Here he is, and now they're going to call That's the game. the end of the game. Unbelievable! Now they call the game. Well, that, that was right, 48 Paul. seconds to go. Yeah, you got to take. <laughs> I think on. that. I think this has been. Just a fiasco by the referees today. Well, that was the right call. You gotta end the game. The fans are throwing crap on the field. Especially when you consider how big of a game this was for the Cleveland Browns. This is ridiculous. And these officials really need to get off the field. And you know what? The fans gotta stop throwing crap. We just saw a guy get hit in the head and he's down, split his head wide open. The fans have gotta control themselves. People are getting hurt. It's ridiculous. You're only hurting yourself by throwing stuff on the field. And the officials are pummeled as they head into the locker room. And Butch Davis is speechless. He doesn't know what to say or what to do. Uh, Tim Couch was booed and like driven to tears in a post-game interview. Jamal Lewis called setting a single-game rushing record against the Browns and then did it. Um, and then I'm not even getting into Johnny Manziel and, and the more recent <laughs> no. things. What is wrong with this organization, Mark?
2: I, you know, and it's funny, I remember every one of those moments because, you know, when you, when you live and die with a, with a, with a bad team and some of those teams under Butch Davis, especially the Bottlegate-Jacksonville game and the, the really terrible situation with Tim Couch because he was just thrown into the fire.
3: Been here going on four
1: years now and, uh, you know, I've laid it on the line for this, this team in this city and for him to turn on me and boo me in my home stadium is is a, is a joke. It's a f***ing joke to me and I've worked my ass off here. And, you know, it's, it's hard to take, man. It is. Man.
2: It just seemed like the team never quite got its mix of veterans and young talent. Um, off the ground at the same time there is you know a case to be made that the Browns were treated very differently by the league probably in an effort to rush them back onto the field to appease you know a city that was furious but they were not given the same time to you know get their staff their coaching staff their scouting staff their team building group together the same way that the Jaguars were you know, previous to them, and certainly the Houston Texans after. It's a completely different roadmap, and I think that Cleveland's early botched drafts and early mistakes set them back years because they were given an extra you know, amount of draft picks for a number of seasons and really nothing came out of it. You know, it's with Cleveland, you could point to 55, probably 500 different things that went wrong, but the the early kernels of how the team was built set them back so far and it caused a lot of desperation too. I think that there've been a lot of desperation picks and just, you know, flat out bad luck for Cleveland.
0: Well, one more example of just like how thorough the dysfunction seems to be in the organization over the course of the last 10 years Two. Uh, Browns players, former Browns players, have actually sued the team, and and these are decent players. Joe Giravicious is one of them, uh, for uh, contracting staff infections when they were injured and being treated by the Browns staff. So, I mean, just the the last fifteen years of the Browns, I mean, we could do a podcast on that it in itself, but the yeah. fact that it's part of this larger curse um, is kind of an amazing thing. But, like, I hear you saying that, like, you know, you can't really, you know, you can't put any of it on the fans. I'm not actually sure I agree with that. What do it, you mean? Especially, well, I mean, because part of the struggles um, that Cleveland has had, at least especially in the last 15 years with the Browns, you know, they there's so much pressure from this community that is so hungry for a championship and has been raked over the coals by Art Modell, by the former owner, by, you know, past terrible drafts by just 15 years of mediocrity right uh that there's so much pressure that it increases the level of turnover and they haven't had an opportunity to really build a competent system to build a good team to build a good front office to build anything structurally uh for 15 years and and i think i think the, the fan base does have something to do with that
1: yeah i wonder about that um does Cleveland mirror Cleveland? Like is this a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of how the city's doing right. and the and the and the teams are doing? But I don't think you can put that on a fan base. I mean, the city still might is, is the city is still going to be considered the mistake on the lake even if LeBron wins the championship. It's not like people are going to flock to that area and businesses and jobs are going to come back. You know, it's not it's not on life support like it was in the 90s, but I mean, what what can the fans do beyond have patience and trust that this new, like Mark and Greg said, we have nothing else but to wait. Like this isn't LA and the Lakers. Kobe's gone. Like they're going to expect the championship in five years. And that, that, that could blow up in their faces. But like at this point with the Browns, if you can't wait it out, you're, you're in the wrong city or you're rooting for the wrong teams.
0: I just think, I think there is, and you had said the other day, like, uh, you know, some of those things that went down like Bottlegate, like, you know, um, fans fans booing Tim Couch like you know in in any any com- if any community you know goes through as much you know strife and as many seasons of losing as Cleveland has any any fan base would react that way I don't know if that's true like I don't see that happening in Denver and I know and I'm being a homer there Yeah. but like I don't see that happening in Denver I don't see that happening in Minneapolis I don't see that happening in Miami or Los Angeles for for different reasons um so, I, don't, I mean, I yeah. see it happening in Philadelphia. I see it happening in the Northeast Rust Belt. Interesting. Um, I don't, and I don't know. Maybe that is just totally naive. And I, actually, and I think as time goes on, the country becomes more homogenous. And uh, it, sure. it probably becomes more and more likely that you're right. But I just, like, does that happen in Green Bay? I don't know.
1: Well, it's, it's so amazing because teams like Green Bay never hit the same kind of rock bottom right? Right. Um, but then you think about a city like Detroit, who is probably more comparable to Cleveland than a Philadelphia would be. And I remember in the mid two thousands, they, they went O in 16 and there were fans wearing bags over their heads to games, but I don't remember them like freaking out. Um, so I don't know if I'm agreeing with you or trying to <laughs> prove you wrong, but, uh, yeah, I mean there's just some some franchises are snake bit and when you compound that with the entire city's franchises for sports, uh, I don't know how you get through it. So maybe in studying this and looking at this, I'm really sympathetic now and I'm trying to walk a mile in, in the Clevelanders' shoes and I feel like shit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean I just I, I think there is like there is and again this is less and less valid as time goes on, but like there is such thing as like a city's character. Like uh, you know, we talked about we talked about it with Boston uh, in our first episode. Um, New York has a character. Um, these Rust Belt cities like Cleveland have a character. Buffalo has a character, um, and like no place is the personality, the character of a city expressed more than in its sports fans, right? Um, and so, I, I think it plays a role. And at this, and at this place, and in this instance. Um, Cleveland is basically, you know, like an abused spouse right. um, and it, there's like a cycle of abuse going on is what I feel like is happening in that town.
1: Yeah. And, and in all terrible relationships, it's really hard to to finally cut the rope and, and let that let that significant other go, especially I mean, it, it the, the, I guess the metaphor ends there because <laughs> the Cleveland franchise chose a different city than Cleveland, you know, for the Browns to, to go to Baltimore. And, and these teams are still rivals. They play each other twice every year. It's got to be so hard. Um, yeah, so I, they're just so broken.
0: But we also talked to Mark about, like, what would it be like if that suddenly turned around, especially with the Browns? He's an NFL guy. And we imagined a future in which the Browns win a championship
2: of the three teams if the Browns won a championship I mean it's it's moved beyond just Cleveland imagine that in the NFL if in the next seven or eight years even shorter if they ever won a Super Bowl I mean they have you know you're talking about your football life special and 30 for 30s I mean that would be one that I think that would stand out as one of the more special championships by any team in all of sports because of how far they've sunk and so you know that that stands out to me beyond any NBA or baseball team, but that's my personal bias.
0: But I mean, wouldn't it really would be incredible?
1: It would be, but and this gets to I. The, as soon as he said that, in my notes I wrote down hyperbole in their hope, and it's <laughs> like I don't think the rest of the league is really going to care that much that they won a Super Bowl. I mean, I don't think that everybody's going to freak out if Buffalo wins a Super Bowl. I mean, if Buffalo makes a Super Bowl, they lost four times in a row for our. Novice sports fans. They lost four Super Bowls in a row in the early 90s. I mean, does if they win a Super Bowl, is, is the world going to all of a sudden get behind Buffalo and freak out? Um, maybe. Uh, maybe that'll happen in Cleveland. I think it's easier to pre- picture a future where Cleveland doesn't win, so it's easy for me to say. <laughs> that It doesn't even cross my mind, and I don't care about the Browns franchise. And I wonder more is if if Cleveland Cavaliers, if they win a championship, like in two sorry in like four weeks you know that's imminent LeBron can can take his city there I, I want to know if if the place goes crazy then is this the catharsis they need I know that they're a football town maybe is is this a shift to a basketball town is the next generation going to forget about the Browns and their troubles and and just be basketball fans because I mean if LeBron does it he, he may they may as well coronate the guy a saint
0: well, okay, so I guess I can offer a little bit of insight into that question. I think, um, in that, the first um, world championship that came to my city was uh, the Colorado Avalanche, and so that's a great, hockey team. Great point. Yeah, and they had I know, actually. I know
1: where you're going with this. The great point. They yeah. had
0: only been there for a couple of years because they had moved from Quebec. Yeah, right? they were the Nordiques. Yeah, they were the Nordiques, and, uh, and and so the Avalanche came to town, and you know, kind of you know, swept Colorado off its feet. Uh, they won a Stanley Cup in the 95-96 season and again in 2000-2001 season. But that first Stanley Cup, I mean, Colorado, Denver is not a hockey town. And they were, they were a brand new team. So, like, that, that first world championship means nothing to that city compared to a couple years later when the Broncos, because Denver's also a football town, and when the Broncos finally won a Super Bowl, I mean, that was everything.
1: Yeah, it's a great great correlation. But I wonder, you know, in, in talking about the futility of the Cleveland franchise, are we looking at a situation where if they don't have the patience for eight years for this team to really build and this coach to go through some tough seasons, like LeBron and the Cavs could be it for a really long time. Right. Like Denver benefited from... The real team in Denver winning the Super Bowl immediately after that and winning two of them um, with with a with a, a guy with as much lore in John Elway as LeBron has in in Northeast Ohio, so yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see. You're probably right about that. If the Browns win, it'll be a different kind of special than if the Cavs win.
0: And I would think, I mean the exp- the the transcendent experience of a brown super bowl win it's hard to say with a straight face but the, <laughs> what that would be like i have to imagine would be 10 times what the broncos super bowl was for me cuz i'm willing to admit that cleveland's got to be more of a football town than denver is just because i mean the hall of fame is down the road in canton i mean the sport was more or less you know i mean it was it was born in at Princeton or whatever, but we can just ignore that part of the history of because, like, it, the sport came of age in the Rust Belt. What what is the moral of the story of the Cleveland Curse? Is it that is it that hope springs eternal? Is it that dysfunction breeds dysfunction? What is it?
1: Man, it's so hard to say because I'm I don't know enough about the the Rust Belt nature of that city and and the race riots in the '60s and the hope or hopelessness that one would have with the public schools and infrastructure. So misery breeding misery or, um, you know, Cleveland mirroring Cleveland. I don't know. I, I think that what I gained from, especially talking to Greg, a guy who grew up in the area, um, it doesn't matter if your team sucks. If you're a real sports fan, you never ever consider leaving them. How could you not feel for those people and and root for them at this point? Like, Throw those bottles, guys. It's been a long run. It's going to feel good in a couple years maybe, but, yeah, it's brutal. Sports are brutal. They mean <laughs> nothing, and they're brutal. Bill Simmons always says, God hates Cleveland. And we'll leave. We'll give Greg the last word here. If Cleveland wins a championship.
3: That town's going to explode. The, the town will be on fire. Hopefully not literally, but the town will be on fire, man,
1: if, if, if they end up winning the championship. Will that be a sign that maybe God doesn't hate Cleveland and we can put that to bed?
3: That would be a big, big sign. That, that would be God giving us a big hug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's it for Why We Root. Special thanks today to Mark Sessler and Greg Sims Jr., as well as Gordon Hurd and everyone else at MansLife.com. This has been a production of Man's Life, the guide for grown-up guys. For Ned Doherty, I'm Eric Mack.
2: I want to show you this. Look, Darlene Willis. And look at this, she already has, and you kept, she kept this jersey. One of the few that survived the burning that took place. Yes. Yes. And you're wearing it now with redemption yes. in mind. Yes, I am. I love it. And
0: I'm glad that he's coming back. Like I've said, he had to go away to learn how to win those rings. He won two rings. Now he can bring that information and education back so
1: that the Cavs can start winning rings, starting this year. You know. Yeah!
2: Darlene brings up a great point. You know, a lot of Clevelanders end up leaving, but we all miss the place, don't we? I mean I can say this. I live in Atlanta now, but we miss Cleveland. LeBron, he just came to that realization. Exactly. I was I went away. I was in the military for 20 years and came back. So sometimes you're young, you have to leave, and then you come back and you
0: appreciate where you came from.
2: So it's all forgiven?
1: All forgiven, yes. Yes it is.